0: Today on the Geggin Pod, we've got a Socceroos debutante. Tommy Orr, 28 caps for Australia, jumps in with former Matilda Amy Duggan and me, your host Teo Pellizzeri, to talk about all the big issues in football. We've got Premier League showboaters, young captains, the unstoppable Erling Haaland, the latest from La Liga. We go in depth on Tommy's career and look ahead to the Matildas and some of the other big issues facing the Australian game. So let's get into it. This is the Geggin Pod, the Optus Sport Football Podcast. It is a GegenPod pod with a bit of a different feel this morning because we have a former Socceroo and a former Matilda joining us in the pod today. Tommy Orr making his GegenPod pod debut and also former Matilda star, Amy Duggan. Tommy, it's exciting to have you as part of the Optus Sport team. Uh, how do we find you on this Wednesday morning?
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I only got off about 20 minutes ago, so I'm feeling fresh, but um, obviously the midweek round this week, so it's been a good start to the morning.
0: And Amy Duggan, I want to welcome you by saying uh, the World Cup and its presence both in Qatar and Australia in 2023 must be starting to feel that little bit more real for you given the week that you've had so far.
2: Oh my gosh, I've had the best week, Taylor. Not just doing highlights as always for Optus and watching, you know, a couple of 9-0 thrashings with Liverpool and Celtic and goals galore and um, moments like that. But this week, outside the league, I had like a fan moment like you'll never imagine from another world, I will say. I got to host the men's and the women's World Cup trophy tours together in Australia. And in fact, I'm led to believe it's the first time the two trophies have been together outside. Outside Zurich for the first time so I uh- And on top of that, just to make it a little bit sweeter, it wasn't just all about the silverware. I shouldn't call it silver, really, because it's gold, isn't it? But I got to meet two amazing legends. I got to meet three-time gold medalist and FIFA World Cup winner, Heather O'Reilly. And wait for it, a little drumroll, please. Rivaldo, how amazing. A Ballon d'Or winner, FIFA International Player of the Year, World Cup winner. Uh, I felt a little inadequate this week, but so, so lucky at the same time. And very, very cool being in the presence of the World Cup.
0: I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, Amy, because uh, Michelle Escobar here at Optus and I were looking at Heather O'Reilly's career, and we saw that she actually played against the Matildas for the first time all the way back in 2004. But unfortunately, you weren't in the matchday squad. So did you ever play against Heather O'Reilly, or do you have recollections of uh, her playing right at the start of her career when she was a teenager? I mean, she's in her mid-30s now, and obviously a World Cup winner and a, a legend of the US game. But when she was just starting out, and the Matildas were uh, a team that she wasn't actually able to beat they drew 1-1 one, one as well
2: They did, and it was, I think, the first time we'd had such a result because back in my day against America, Taylor, let's just say they were healthy floggings. Um, I didn't have the pleasure of playing against Heather, and we did go across our our history when we met the other day. Uh, Sarah Walsh from Football Australia was there. She did grace the pitch with Heather, and I know that they caught up. Um, They also played, I think, in the same team over in America for a little while. So we had a really great chat. I think the coolest thing about Heather, and I'm sure she won't mind me um, sharing this little, Uh, flashback was just earlier uh, over the last uh, 12 months she at 37 decided she had never had a Champions League experience so she joined a team in Ireland and the name's escaping me but she did head over there and played Champions League uh, for the first time in her career as a retired US national team star and even managed to score a goal so she ticked off that bucket list item
0: not, not a bad position to be and I guess when you can say hey World Cup winner here I'd like to come and play for your team <laughs> she, 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 Shelbourne by imagine, the way.
2: Imagine the long list of call arounds I said, nah you're not really what we're after sorry <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, 231 caps sorry it's 232 or more please no uh, Shelbourne was the team that she played for oh, over in Ireland. Yes. So. Um, now Rivaldo though I mean that must have been pretty exciting too. How was his English was he able to do much other than say yeah, yes to selfies or, or none at yeah, all? Yeah
2: none no none. Um, he had a a a wonderful translator there, Juliana. She was uh, gorgeous and in his ear all day and he gave uh, quite a speech about his time as a player and how privileged he is, um, you know, obviously to have got all the accolades um, he has, uh, and also the World Cup, and of course, you know, if you're if you've never won a World Cup or you're not a state national, you're not allowed to touch it. So the the perspex was all over the trophy for those that don't understand the rules. But of course, Rivardo and Heather could lift their respective trophies, and they were giving it a little kiss, and um, you know. Redoing the the trophy lift for us For some photographic moments It was pretty special Um, He did have some choice uh, (laughs) Advice for Graham Arnold Which I'm not quite sure Which way that went down He he did let us know That it was going to be A very tough group For Australia Um, But you know With some dedication Motivation and concentration We might get lucky I think that would be The English translation Of what he said So I'm not sure How their conversation Went after that But um, it was just great To have him here I think like so amazing to see someone of that caliber in the flesh. I only wish I could have seen him play in the flesh.
0: Tommy Rivaldo would have been a, a player that was probably at the peak of his powers when you were either just starting out or, or maybe in the early stages of your juniors. I mean, what are your recollections of him?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously he was a player that I grew up watching a lot of. Um, I think I remember the 2006 World Cup. Um, this is probably the worst moment of his career. I think everybody remembers oh, that corner. game against Turkey. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. But I think that, yeah, you know, obviously that was one blemish on his otherwise amazing career. So he was definitely a player I used to love watching when I was growing up.
0: Amy, uh, I understand that asking about the incident against Turkey uh, in that 2002 <laughs> World Cup, I understand that was off limits. No one was, allowed to, no one was allowed to ask him about it. I'm guessing you as the MC of the function didn't dare to bring it up.
2: Tao, I was absolutely gracious in my questioning uh no journalistic uh effort to dig deep and be controversial right there and then um no i i was more i don't want to say a cheerleader but um you know i'm a fan of the game and i think when we're when we've made the effort to have someone come out here i wouldn't be looking to to dive too deep and and you know potentially embarrass them a little bit (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, well, I, just just on the trophies, Tommy, how, I mean, for starters, Amy's, you know, told us there is the first time the two trophies have been together outside of Zurich. Is it starting to feel real yet that we really are hosting a World Cup and, uh, you know, we're now a year away from it. We're getting closer and closer to it becoming a reality.
1: Yeah, I think no one in Australia realises how big it's going to be. I think that's the most exciting thing. And obviously, as it gets closer, I think it'll start to kind of sink in just the scale of the event. But I mean, yeah, well, I think all everyone involved in football in Australia, once it was announced that we we're going to host it, realized how big this will be. But I think the general population probably hasn't quite sunk in yet. So I'm definitely excited. And um, yeah, I think there's still a lot of things to play out in the lead up. So I'm really excited to follow for the next kind of nine months.
0: I must admit, uh, to put it in a little bit of context, in, in 2015, I remember the Women's World Cup, in the Perspex uh, case, Amy, came to Australia, and it, it definitely did come to Melbourne, and I'm pretty sure I was the only journalist there who turned up to, you know, at least look through the through the case at it. And it's it's nice to see that, you know, these events are getting bigger and bigger. Do you know if the trophy's coming back again before yes, it comes, it comes here to be, to be won? Yes, Do, Is absolutely. it going to be like the Olympic torch doing like a, a tour? Or what's the? Yeah. Are we like? I know that the cricket T Twenty World Cup, which is coming up in a couple of months, it's gone to Uluru, it's gone to Outback WA, it's kind of been on a bit of a tour. So surely FIFA is going to make the most of some of the spectacular Australian landscapes, Great Barrier Reef, and other places that it could potentially go. Uh, maybe the the big banana in Coffs Harbour or somewhere like that. <laughs>
2: The big prawn, the big potato at Robbo I can, yeah, the big, (laughs) what's that? The big sheep, Merino at Goulburn, come on We should definitely have a big tour With the Women's World Cup trophy, that would be hilarious Um, My understanding is On a serious note that it is coming back For a Women's World Cup trophy Tour ahead of the World Cup So I don't have specifics Of that yet or where it's going to go But it's super exciting and I think The more people that get their eyes clapped On this, you know, um architectural brilliant piece of, you know, grandness that I was never lucky enough to hold, um, the more we'll realise how real it is. But it is quite mind boggling when you when you actually see it sit there and think, We put all these hours and all these moments and all these games in for this trophy at the end of the day for this, you know, this little, it's not little, it's, you know, it's quite big. It's a good 50 centimetres tall, half a metre tall, but um, for for a piece of silverware, because Tommy, you would know, it's way more um, about the journey, isn't it? And the friendships and the experiences shared and the wins and the goals and the change room antics and the the broken down buses and the trips to the training fields that are way out there and, you know, you're being punished for something something, it's so much more than just, um, and the fans, you know, with pulling on the jerseys and rocking up and watching that. and. I- when we talk about fans, I can't wait to see the fans from the Netherlands because, you know, they do that big walk of orange and it's just, it's just to be amazing to see that in Australia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, as you touched on, it's, it's more about the memories and the experiences that you had as opposed to any kind of tangible object. But I guess the significance of the object in, in, in the case of the World Cup trophy, I mean, it's probably the biggest trophy in the sport, so... Um, It's the biggest
2: trophy in the world, Tommy The world
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, no I I guess I was unfortunate in my career Not to win too many trophies But I do have one So (laughs) I cherish it But, uh, oh, two actually I have two But, um, no, for me It's, as you mentioned All about the memories
0: well, let's get into a bit of Premier League because if you are listening on Wednesday, the day we're recording this, we're in the midst of a very busy Premier League midweek round. Just the results this morning. Leeds and Everton drawing one all. That was the same score for Palace and Brentford. Southampton upsetting Chelsea 2-1 and Fulham defeating Brighton 2-1. And if you're listening to this uh, late Wednesday or overnight into Thursday morning, we've got a massive morning of Premier League coming up with Man City, Arsenal, Spurs and Liverpool all in action and it just starts to really uh, allow the table to take a bit more shape if we can go back to the weekend of uh, premier league i'm interested in your best and worst moments Uh, it can be incidents in games it can be overall team performances it can be an individual performance tommy or what was your highlight your best moment of the premier league weekend
1: i think it was the the volley from alan saint maximin the last minute equalizer (sighs) against wolves um I mean, it was a poor clearance, but he punished them emphatically. And I think that, obviously, last week he was fantastic against uh, Manchester City as well. And I think he's really looming as one of the most exciting players in the league. So that was my highlight from the weekend.
0: Amy, has Tommy stolen your thunder there?
2: Oh, he has. But how can you go past that goal? Like, it was sensational. You know, as Tommy said, a pretty poor clearance from the defender. But what wonderful timing to smash that and it will be an early contender for goal of the year for sure um, that was great there was also a good goal this morning um, Lavia's goal is 18 Tommy playing for Southampton and you know their first win over Chelsea in nine years this morning and as an 18 year old I think you know that that had similar it wasn't a volley obviously got a touch on the top of the box but I was like whoa there's been some really great you know deep 18 yard goals um, come over the weekend I think my best moment of the week besides that though just had to be watching all the goals um, because obviously we had the 9-0 thumping from Liverpool which I know has had some uh, ongoing effects and I'm sure we're going to talk about that this morning but um, as a fan there's nothing better than waking up and watching a goal fest is there?
0: No, especially with the, the morning goals packages that you get on Optus Sport. You know, you, 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 so, sometimes if you, if you open it up and, and you see how long it is, and you think, oh, boy, what, what happened in some of these games today? And that was certainly the case on Sunday morning if you weren't watching it live. OK, let's go to the, the worst moments. Uh, and, Amy, you flagged that uh, the uh, fallout from yeah. that 9-0 defeat for Liverpool has been uh, pretty severe for Bournemouth. But, Tommy, what did you have as your worst moment of the weekend?
1: Well, it wasn't really a worst moment, but I think it was a surprising moment. And it was obviously Liverpool scoring nine goals, but Mo Salah not having any involvement in any of them. Um, obviously, No assists but, either, yeah. Exactly. So I think there's been a lot of talk um, you know, since Mane left about whether he can be, recreate his form from the last few seasons. And uh, I think early in the game as well, he had a really bad miss in the game. So that was probably my worst moment from the weekend.
2: Yeah, it was a bit sad to not see Salah on the goal sheet and someone else who isn't having great form at the moment is obviously Son as well over at Tottenham. You know, normally we've seen him bag a couple by now too. So a couple of our big-name strikers not standing up, but my worst moment, I have to just, my heart has to go out to Bournemouth. (laughs) As much as I love watching the goals, I have been on the end of a 9-0 thumping, just so you know. And actually it was 9-1 and it's not a great feeling. And, um... I really feel for Scott Parker being the first one sacked, and I'm not sure many pundits would have got that one right. Um, also, becoming, I think, like the eighth coach to get sacked after playing Liverpool. And, you know, he's played, he's, they've played the big names. They've played City, Arsenal, Liverpool, and I don't think they would have been expected to win, but certainly not been thumped. Uh, by that many goals, and his post-game comments obviously haven't helped him, and created a, a bigger crevice um, between him and the club. and And already, week, you know, a couple of weeks in, we're saying goodbye. So I, I do feel for him a little bit.
0: Well, let's get onto that as our first issue of the week, because when we predicted the manager sack race at the start of the season, I think everyone assumed that the promoted teams would have a grace period, and the likes of Steve Cooper or Scott Parker weren't going to get sacked. Uh, And yet, uh, Amy, you have alluded to Parker's post-match comments there, and I think that, as much as the results, has been the factor. So Parker said, for those of you that hadn't uh, heard his post-match press conference, I feel sorry for the players, to be honest with you, because at the moment we are just a bit under-equipped at this level from where we have come from. And then Bournemouth in their statement, uh, which was only about 60 words, that announced Parker's departure, for us to keep progressing as a team and a club as a whole, it is unconditional that we are aligned in our strategy to run the club sustainably. We must also show belief in and respect for one another. So pretty telling there that clearly the (laughs) management of Bournemouth Didn't I? Well, a lot of managers use the media to put pressure on their own club to open the purse strings, to go out and buy. We've seen Antonio Conte, Jose Mourinho. They know how to do it, they know how to work the media in order to create that internal pressure on the club. Scott Parker, Amy, did he get too clever or was he just a bit too honest? Or have the Bournemouth administration got a bit of a glass jaw here to maybe not appreciate a bit of a home truth?
2: I think a bit of both and the timing obviously doesn't help with the transfer window closing um, so imminently. So, you know, I don't know, you've got to have deep pockets. Obviously, clubs um, do better when they come into the top league financially, but it doesn't, you know, I get what they're saying. Sustainability is really important. He's obviously been asking um, for for more depth. You know, he said they're, they're well under equipped to play the top teams in the league. Um, it's a tough situation to be in. It, like, it's just the fourth time in Premier League history we've seen a scoreline like that. And as I said, it, it, like, it's so hard. It's so hard as a coach. It's so hard on the sidelines. It's so hard as a player to, when you go down by four or five, to to keep trying because there is nowhere to hide. And in this case, it just kept. It just kept getting worse. So, you know, I feel for him and and it was probably a little too little too late. And at the end, I think he was just looking for someone to share the shoulder of blame after such a demoralizing and embarrassing defeat.
0: Uh, The other question I have, Tommy, is a Bournemouth with with that statement effectively saying, we're happy to be a Norwich, a Fulham, a West Brom. We're happy to be a yo-yo team here. We're not going to break the bank to try and avoid relegation in any one given year. The word sustainably stands out there to me is, we're not going to go and make a panic signing on deadline day just because the manager wants one.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, there's kind of two factors to that as well. And obviously, it's a really difficult league with the with the resources that some of the clubs have at the moment. Um, you know, if you're not willing to spend to improve the squad, it can be really difficult to compete. But the other part is to, to sack a manager so early in the season, you know. You're kind of riding off the whole pre-season. So... Um, you know, the smaller teams with the smaller budgets, they can kind of get the edge by being really organised disciplined. So they've rated, they kind of dug themselves a hole now because they're going to have a manager coming in, starting from scratch with a squad that... Probably isn't as strong as the other squads in the Premier League, so I think it's going to be a really difficult season for them.
0: Now the odds for the next manager. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to give. I'm not going to give the numbers. I'm just going to read them out in order of uh, the names. Sean Dyche is the overwhelming favourite. The former Burnley manager, Chris Wilder, who we saw do amazing things with Sheffield United to get them into the Premier League and have that amazing first season before they uh, they then bottomed out in season two. And other names, Jonathan Woodgate, Gary O'Neill, John Terry, Michael Carrick and Mark Robbins are among the leading candidates. Is this as simple as because Sean dice is on the market, the Bournemouth administration felt as though they could pull the trigger on this sacking because he's right there and he's available?
2: Well, you, you would think they wouldn't. They I don't think any uh, administration would be crazy enough to just sack and then we'll see what's on the market tomorrow. They would know what's out there and what their options are. Um, Or they may have let him hold on just a little bit longer, Tao. But, um, yeah, it's good to have a backup plan. Is he interested? Will it work? You know, there's a whole lot of other uh, considerations to come into a decision like this. But um, they will have to now move quickly.
0: Tommy, would you hire Dyche, or would you want would you want maybe? I mean, Bournemouth got into the Premier League the first time with a, a young sort of idealistic manager in Eddie Howe. Ironically, uh, the manager that got sacked from Burnley and was replaced by Sean Dyche. But yeah. putting that putting that aside, uh, do you think they they could go for a younger a younger manager like a Jonathan Woodgate or a John Terry, or is the safe pair of hands Sean Dyche the answer to try and squeeze the most out of the cherry, so to speak, as they can for the season ahead?
1: I think Sean Dyche is obviously the most logical option. He's obviously got the experience in the Premier League and um, he's a known quantity also for the players, I think. But, um, yeah, I think as well, you know, the, the, the other style of managers, you know, the more pragmatic um, and the, the people that maybe more resemble the Ange Postacoglu kind of style of football, I think they take a bit more time to kind of implement their style on a squad. And obviously there isn't time. Um, there's obviously a really busy few months now leading into the World Cup, even busier than normal. And there's a lot of games. So I think they'll want someone that can come in and make an immediate impression.
0: It's a great point you make about the World Cup, though, because if a manager's going to get sacked, you would assume it is in that month's break where anyone that's not picked for the World Cup has effectively a new pre-season to, to go and prepare for the rest of the campaign. But we'll wait and see how that pans out with Bournemouth. Obviously, they've, their goal difference now probably isn't going to recover for the rest of the season, so they're going to have that hanging over them. It's almost like an extra point for the rest of the campaign. Let's move on to an incident that happened in Spurs' 2-0 win against Nottingham Forest, and it was Richarlison doing the keepy-uppies and then getting absolutely clattered. Tommy... If someone did that in a game that you played in, regardless of whether it was uh, in any of the various overseas leagues that you'd played in or in Australia, did Richarlison just get what was coming?
1: Yeah, I've seen it a few times, actually. Um, To be honest, it's the kind of thing that you associate with Neymar normally. He's usually doing those kind of antics. But, um, yeah, I've seen it once, and it was actually Ange Postacoglu was the coach, and it was Enrique, the, the small Brazilian player in our team that did it. And I remember... Ange, after the game, basically ripped his head off and said that you know, that, that kind of behaviour is unacceptable. And I think his reasoning was really interesting because he said that um, you, know, you have to ask yourself if your behaviour or if your antics on the field are going to help your team win football matches. And if the answer is no, then don't do it. So.
0: Did, did did Enrique in that instance, like, was he just bored? Was he because was he, he mentally had switched off and relaxed? Did he ever actually tell the team why he chose to do it? Or did he actually want to go out and kind of assert himself and disrespect the opposition just because he I felt like I was, it?
1: I, I don't think he made a conscious effort to disrespect the opposition. I think that, you know, we'll couple goals up and he was probably just enjoying himself. And, you know, he probably lost track of... Um, Yeah, his job in the game so I don't think he had too many sinister kind of uh, ideas behind it but at the same time um, being on the receiving end of that kind of behaviour would probably not be very nice and I can understand why um, they lashed out at Richarlison the way they did
0: Be honest, did it ever cross your mind during your career to do something like that or is is it just something that you know not to do?
1: Oh, I think sticking to basics for me was challenging enough, so I just tried to
0: do that to be honest. <laughs> Amy, had, oh, you, had, I... you, had you ever seen a, an act like that when you were playing, either from a teammate or an opponent?
2: Uh, there's a few players uh, jump to mind that are capable of this and, and a few that didn't mind the odd dive in the penalty box and did it very acrobatically, but this is a little bit out there. And I think, you know, if you're mucking around or ha- having a – Uh, it's a less important game or it's not a league game or, you know, you're not playing for points. Okay. Look, I'm all for a bit of showing off. Um, But, and when you're winning comfortably, and if you're going to do some sort of trickery that's benefiting the team, and I think, you know, that was the important part that Tommy just pulled out there too. That is the part. Is it benefiting the team? Look, if it is, go for it. But if it's not, watch out. Because as your mate and your teammate, you better make sure it's on because, as he, the five meter pass didn't even make where it was supposed to make. So let's get let's get that bit right. If you're going to muck around, make sure you make the pass correctly. And on the other hand, as a defender opposing you, I'm absolutely okay to cop a yellow card to whack you to let you know that that that's not alright on my pitch. Like don't don't be disrespecting whether you meant it or not, Tommy. Don't be disrespecting yeah. my team like that, thinking that you can get away with that.
0: Now, Amy, Brendan Johnson was the Nottingham Forest player who, eh, to be fair, it was maybe only the circumstances saved him from getting a more, uh, a more severe sanction for the tackle because it was a spectacular way that he wiped Richarlison out. But in, in your Matilda's teams over the years, were you the player that would take the responsibility? or would Oh, my it be God, your, you're asking
2: your, for me all my inside secrets today, <laughs> Tao.
0: Well, no, I'm, I'm um, just saying, would it have been your good friend ooh. Heather Garriock that may have uh, gone and, and hit the reducing tackle to say, don't disrespect us like that?
2: I think um, I think I grew up in an era where there were some pretty tough players. Alison Foreman, um, Anissa Tan Darby. H is a little bit younger than me, but certainly a competitor. Um, and there have been plenty of games where it gets, you know, a bit angsty out there. I think um, when you take on a leadership role in a team, you can't, you know, certainly as captain, you can't be going out making Um, challenges like that because it's you know that's probably not the way to lead by example but I think every team has uh, what I like to call an enforcer and someone that sets the tone and really steps up when those tough challenges are required I'm not sure you know it was necessarily required what happened to Richarlson from Johnson but at the same time I totally understand it and you know the commentary team during the game copped a bit of flack for saying, well, what did you think was going to happen? And I think you'll find most competitors at the top level will say exactly the same thing. If you're going to if you're going to be cheeky and you're going to be smart, make sure it comes off and watch out because the other team's not going to to take kindly to it.
0: Let's talk about the next big issue of the weekend, which was Erling Haaland. He scored a hat-trick for Manchester City. They came back from 2-0 down against Crystal Palace in order to win 4-2. And are we at the point now, Amy, where basically City, they've fallen 2-0 down, I think, in in four of their last seven games. They haven't lost any of them. Oh, sorry, they've been behind by two goals, as was the case Mm. against Newcastle. Is Haaland now the player that just makes any situation redeemable for Manchester City? Because it looks like he is playing a different sport at times out there.
2: Uh, Oh, he's unreal, isn't he? Like... (sighs) I just think when he signed, it was amazing. And I think there was a few of us that thought, oh my gosh, how is he going to fit into this system of play? Will the transition across be smooth? Because it's not always. But then you go and look at the goals that he scored. The hat trick, um, especially the second one, I think it is where he breaks through the centre, holds off the two defenders with just strength. Um, It's absolutely outstanding. And there are not many players capable of that. Them coming from 2-0 down, I think Pep, has to dig a little deeper into that because I don't know if that's complacency and then, um, and then, you know, they're actually stepping up and playing how they should be playing from the beginning. I wouldn't like to see that from my team. Um, I wouldn't want to get into the pattern where you only perform when you're coming from behind. That'd be horrible. But look, he scored six goals before this morning's games. Um, He's already said quite vocally he wants to beat his dad's tally of 18. Um, There's only been four players previously that have scored six games, uh, six goals plus in four games. That's Diego Costa, who had seven in 2014, Sergio Aguera, and um, Mick Quinn, I think, was the last one. So can we just also remember... He had two touches in one of the games and eight in the match v Bournemouth. So, in fact, I think in one of the games, he didn't even touch the ball for half an hour. So, his efficiency, he's making things happen with with no touches on the ball.
0: Tommy, how would you describe Erling Haaland's effect on Manchester City and the Premier League generally?
1: Yeah, I mean, his pace and power are obvious and um, he's obviously a a physical force to be reckoned with. But the thing I think that's really impressed me um, so far since the the first... You know, three or four games of the season is how alive he is in the box for the loose ball. You know, so he can score all kinds of goals, like Amy touched on. Um, you know, whether it's bursting through the lines on the end of a through ball or across into the box. But, you know, obviously, Manchester City, they always have not a lot of attackers in the box and he's always alive for that loose ball. And I think Amy can tell you just how difficult that is for a defender to stop.
0: It, is it a, for, a foregone conclusion that he can rewrite the record books here? I mean, pre- Premier League era. He's he's looking like he can get up into a, a thirty plus goal sort of territory. I mean Mo Salo twenty seventeen, eighteen, scored thirty two, Alan Shearer, ninety four, ninety five scored thirty-four are we looking at perhaps the first player that could score 40 in a season or will Manchester City's Champions League commitments mean that he gets put in cotton wool and doesn't actually play the full season and get that sort mm. of a chance to to have that sort of a tally?
1: Well, I think that the one thing you can be sure of is that he'll get a lot of chances. Um, so, you know, even if he does have a few games, not in the starting lineup or, you know, when they're, when they're rotating and these types of things, I just can't see him stopping from scoring to be honest. So, for me, if he can remain fit, I think that's the big question mark. If he can remain fit, then I think that the goals will come.
2: Yeah. He, look, he, he's an aerial threat. He's a poacher in the box. He can turn, you know, no touches into something amazing. He'll outpace most defenders over a short distance. He's already, you know, it looks like he's already, well, he has already broken a lot of records, not in the Premier League, but elsewhere. And um, as you mentioned um the magic number is 34 and i know you talked about Shearer. let's remember andy cole actually set that first in uh, i think the was it 92 or 93 or the year before 93 94 it was the maybe year somewhere around there right yeah. yeah okay but i agree with tommy the like the big question mark here will hang on his fitness because we had discussed this when he came across to the premier league his injury history is actually um, not very good and And that'll be the key to this. If he stays fit, I reckon he's off to such a good start and just has this amazing mindset and pace that you can't beat.
0: Let's keep talking Premier League with one more big topic out of the weekend, uh, and that was Martin Odegaard, who is playing very well as Arsenal's captain. Speaking of Norwegians, it's kind of sad to think that Odegaard and Haaland won't be in Qatar at the World Cup, even though they are two of the form players in the Premier League right now. Arsenal, the only team in the English League system in the top four divisions with four wins from four. No one else has been able to match that tally down the, uh, down the pyramid. Tommy... Who's a player that you can think of during your career that once they put the captain's armband on, they actually took their their performances and their career to another level because they actually thrived with the ability to lead a group?
1: Yeah, I think that the first player that comes to my mind that uh, you know, the, the armband a, had a similar effect on than it has for Odegaard was um, Mile Jedinak with the national team. Uh, I think prior to being given the armband, he wasn't even necessarily in the starting lineup every game but he was obviously always in and around the squad but, you know, once he got the armband he took his game to a whole new level and he was a proper leader and he had a huge influence on everyone around him so I think he's the first name that springs to mind.
0: Odegaard himself, I mean, is it plausible that an Arsenal player could win player of the season or do you have to more or less, I mean, in our uh, Giganpod preseason preview, we said that the player of the season was going to come from the top two and everyone defaulted to the idea it was going to be a Manchester City or a Liverpool player. So is it realistic that that Arsenal either A could finish in the top two or B could have player of the season if they don't?
1: I think it's difficult to get a player of the season if your team's not winning especially as a captain I think you know to, to be a captain of a winning team is such a such a big thing so I think it's going to be difficult if they don't get in the top 2 for him but I do believe that Arsenal can do that I think that they've got a different aura about them this season um, they're playing fantastically I think you know Gabriel Jesus has been an excellent signing for them and I think it's been a big game changer
2: Huge game changer that one. Um, we've we've gone into great lengths about um, the fact that he was let go and then and then signed um, at Arsenal and what sort of effect that's going to have across the league. I think the awesome thing about this side t is that they're predominantly really young. And um, I know Arteta is really vocal on the sidelines, coaching them and literally talking them through things. And I think that is because they're so young. But how outstanding is it to be? Uh, What a start they're off to. So Martin Odegaard, 23 years old, um, feels a bit young to be a leader and probably came as a surprise to many, like when it was Uh, when he was announced, but as you know, Tommy said, for some players, that armband is just the shot of confidence and respect that they require. It does make them stand up. It makes them be seen. It makes them take responsibility. Uh, In some cases, it makes players more vocal than they normally are because they feel they have the right um, uh, or, you know, the status to actually speak up when normally sometimes they don't feel like that. I think their biggest test will come when they're not winning because it's easier to lead when you are winning uh it's harder when you're down when you're losing um, when you're coming from behind how do you keep your team up how do you pick them up How do you lead by example? How do you motivate, get involved, you know, demand better in the right way? But at the same time, the important part there is to not panic and and to be composed. And I think that's where you have to understand your teammates around you and how to get the best out of them and make them better. Um, The glimpses of that so far have been really good. We take the game against Fulham. Uh, for example, you know, uh, there was a period there where they kind of dropped off and he got really involved. He created things. He, he ended up scoring, and I think, that, what's that, three goals in two games. So, um, you know, at the moment, it looks like the right choice, doesn't it? And his relationship with Saka is one to keep an eye on, um, too, because I think he looks up to him a little bit, but he also passes to him more than any other player on the pitch.
0: Before I get your answer about uh, the captain's armband changing a player's career, Amy, uh, the one I think of is Steph Catley was made Melbourne Victory's captain at a really young age. I think she was only 21 and then ended up winning a championship with Victory at, I think, only 21 or 22 and then when she moved to Melbourne City, it was the super team. It had Jess Fishlock as the obvious captain. It had uh, Kim Little and Jen Beatty and, and some of those senior Australian internationals like Lisa Devanna. And Catley just went back to being able to be a young player again and, and get to learn mm. all over again. But that experience of being able to captain a championship in her early 20s has held her in incredibly good stead. And even though she hasn't captained too many teams since, I still feel as though that did have a transformative effect on her at a very early stage of her career.
2: Well I think she captained the Matildas for a little while too if I'm uh, if I'm not wrong. So I think um you know for Steph it it was what a wonderful experience to have you know leading a team and a young team again through a league and um and and all the way to a championship. I think it's important that all players are afforded that opportunity especially in their junior careers so they understand what it's like and often uh, you know, often you, you mentioned Jess Fishlock there, and I think Jess is an outstanding leader, but for completely different reasons. They're very, very different captains. Jess is very vocal. Um, I like to say bossy, but but it's not bossy. It's instructional. Um, she's demanding. She sets the standard, the tone. You, you know, you she'd be right up here for for not. You know lifting and being at the right level a very different captain to steph who i think has a has a more soft influence on what goes on but also um while she's firing and competitive it doesn't cut you don't see it the emotion of it and i think that, you know there's a really fine balance between a captain that's super emotional and can sometimes be pushed over the edge to a captain that can be very composed and in saying that like some players just don't need the extra pressure either tao some players would capitulate <laughs> onto being the captain um, they don't want that extra pressure they don't need it and you know just because you're a big name or you're a big voice some of you, you look around that arsenal change room and there would be there's bigger voices isn't there than martin odegaard but you don't need to give those players the armband because they're going to lead already so sometimes this is the little carrot that has that tempering effect settles things down and um leads in a more composed way and i think sometimes that's more important in a captain than it is to have that you know that fire vocal leadership
0: one more I just wanted to throw out there, Amy. We saw it at the Women's Heroes. Leah Williamson, she was elevated to captain, and look at a, a very much a lead by example captain. But then you hear what she had to say about the legacy effect of the tournament and how she wanted all the fans at the final to be coming to WSL games, and you realise that, you know, again, it's it's someone who grew into the role very capably as the tournament went on.
2: Yeah, and, you know, absolutely correct. And she's not the first name you go to when you think of that team because she's not the goal scorer. She's not the loud one. She's not the show-off. Um, but she's she's the stable pillar, you know, playing in the centre there that is, you know, keeping everyone together. And that's, that's really important. And as I said, you know, they had a, a glorious tournament and what a tournament to lead, winning the whole way through, Tay. But I really do think for a captain the struggle starts you know it's a bit like a like a pilot or an airline hostess it's all fun and games until something actually goes wrong and that's when you really start to earn your money or earn your stripes
0: well after this very short break we'll talk about la liga we'll talk about the end of the transfer window and a little bit more on tommy orr's career and some of the big issues in the australian game at the moment you're listening to the optus sport football podcast this is the Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. In the pod today, we have former Matilda Amy Duggan and former Socceroo Tommy Orr. Let's get to the end of the transfer window. The Premier League spending has been more than any other competition. I believe it is now at the stage where it's more than the rest of the big five leagues combined. So that's Italy, Germany, Spain, and also France. Uh, The the recent record, Alexander Ishak joining Newcastle United, their record signing. Anthony, uh, you have to refresh your your web browsers and your Twitter feed every couple of minutes to see if it's a done deal yet. But that's (laughs) going to be an extraordinary amount of money as well. And we haven't even got to the panic buy phase yet, right at the end of the window. Tommy, is this a good thing? I mean, obviously, everyone gets to watch the Premier League on Optus Sports, so we love it when the big names come in and Newcastle get to sign someone like Anishak, but what do you make of uh, the effect this is having on the game in general? Did we end up with the Super League by stealth after all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can see that the way Barcelona is handling their transfer affairs, that they're making every effort to keep up, but... It's more difficult for the for the, obviously for the clubs in the different leagues. Um, obviously, as a fan of the Premier League, it's amazing to see all the the best players in the world. You know, kind of slowly moving towards one league. And obviously, I think the quality of the Premier League has improved. But I think that the reason that the uh, the transfer fees are getting so out of hand is because you know clubs have a fear of missing out. Because simply, if they don't pay for the you know whatever whatever the clubs are asking for, another club probably will. So unless you kind of conform to the market then you're just not going to get the players that you want
0: Man United put out a, a very short three sentence statement Amy saying they've agreed uh, on Anthony but until you see him holding the shirt and passing his medical it's not a done deal just yet but it's pretty pretty close.
2: Yeah we'll wait till we see his name on the players list sheet or doing the parade as we did for Casemiro Tay because you know as you said you just refresh all the time to see where we're at with all these there's rumours everywhere there's players coming and going it's like seriously hard to Keep up. Um, why is this happening? Well, some would say that it's the post-COVID rebuild, right? Because that you know there was less movement, less dollars to spend. It was it was a lot harder. But it's also you know an early chance to get your team right. The next window obviously is not till January. Um, promoted teams need to spend money to stay competitive. Um, we've seen that, but. I think the hard thing here is knowing that the big stars follow one opportunities, you know, more football, Champions League, all those things are, are so attractive, but also ultimately the dollars at the end of the day. And, um, you know, Nottingham's a great example of the big spenders this year, aren't they? Like in the effort to stay up. Uh, we've discussed it before how much more money a club can generate by being in the top flight. So, you know, they're spending now and hopefully making that money back over time. But,. Oh, it's um, it's stretching the gap, though, isn't it, between the leagues, I guess. You know, it is wonderful, Tommy, to have all the great players in one place and certainly on Optusport, we're blessed with that. But when it starts coming at the cost of other leagues around the world, I start to get a little bit uncomfortable. And I watch that stretch between the leagues, but I also um, am now watching that stretch get bigger and bigger, or that gap getting bigger and bigger between the top teams in the Premier League and the bottom teams, the haves and the have-nots, those with the bigger, the bigger purses.
1: No, yeah, exactly, and I think that, um, like you touched, you touched on it. Um, you know, for the smaller teams and the championship teams as well. You know, if 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 a team hasn't gotten promoted for a few seasons, they can get left behind very easily as well. And I think what you'll see is that eventually, a team that gets relegated will immediately bounce back up. Um, you know, so I think that these are kind of the secondary issues that can happen from you know the the transfer fees and these kinds of things just getting out of hand but um yeah i think it'll be an interesting few days ahead and um like you touched on i think nottingham forest as well their approach to the transfer market has obviously been the pole opposite to bournemouth so how both those newly promoted teams will fare this season will be very interesting
2: yeah, and then you look at like West Ham and, and Newcastle, too, Tay, like 50 million bucks or more on players. Um, and you know, in Newcastle's case uh, at the end of last season, they had to do that because they were staring down relegation at that stage. But the more money you spend, the higher you climb up the ladder. Well, generally, because it's not really helping the hammers at the moment, is it? But, um, you know, the transfer system supposed to be there to share the wealth and reward clubs for player development. And I think really all it's doing at this stage, T, is stabilising the power structure because, uh, you know, as we've discussed, not all teams can afford um, the likes of some of these top players.
0: Oh, and in West Ham's case, I signing Skamaka and also Paqueta from Lyon, both uh, more than €30 million, Euros, the transfer value. These are players that will link to some of the top clubs in the world, and as the top clubs you know, have to make the hard decisions on their wage structure and who's going to be the top earners in their team, West Ham are the ones that come in and are willing to actually break the bank and pay the money, and if it pays off for them, they, they're absolutely capable of making the leap into a team that's permanently in those European places and who knows, maybe even uh, pushing for the Champions League if they consistently do this over a number of transfer windows, adding players of this quality. I'm sure West Ham fans would be hoping that turns out to be the case, and uh, Newcastle are probably trying to do it in a a far quicker period of time than maybe the Hammers are, that's for sure. Uh, Speaking of uh, La Liga, though, and Barcelona, Tommy, you touched on them and some of their transfer activity. Robert Lewandowski, he was able to show his quality at the weekend as Barcelona beat Valladolid 4-0. Luka Modric and Karim Benzema were both excellent as Real Madrid had another win of their own. They're a perfect Three wins from three so far to start the season. But we're not talking about spring chickens here. We're not talking about young players on the rise. These are still very much uh, the old stages at the peak of their powers. And my question is, how and why have the likes of Lewandowski, Benzema, Luka Modric been able to remain some of the best players in the world well into their 30s?
1: Yeah, I think obviously we're talking about three of the best players of this generation. So I think it's it's true that it's remarkable that they're still you know at the peak of their powers. But I don't necessarily think it's a theme across the board. I think it's just a reflection of their individual talent. Um, the other thing I think that's worth mentioning is obviously the La Liga is a fantastic league, and it's um, and it, you know on par with the Premier League, but I believe that the physical demands probably aren't the same. So I think it's probably a bit easier to to have a little bit more longevity in in that league than it would be in the Premier League, for example.
2: Wowzers, Tommy. That's a big call to make, isn't it? Like um, Less challenging. I think... um... I think for me, T, it's just about professionalism. That's what's changed. I think you look at training methodology, analysis, loads, um, programs, insights, sports science, injury prevention, rehab. Um, Let's not forget the more you play football, the smarter you get or the better football brain you have the longer that you play. But it's sometimes the body generally that lets you down (laughs) that becomes the issue. So, uh, you know, I think it has a lot to do with those things. I, I don't think they've necessarily had an easier Ride. I think they're just outstanding and they're able to get better because they've been in the game for longer.
0: Uh, having uh, cut the mini match and the highlights for both Barcelona and Real Madrid at the weekend just gone via Delid, you look at the score 4-0 they didn't quite have the quality but to their credit they took the game on they they didn't sit back and, and just try to batten down the hatches and, and cling on for dear life the newly promoted team and Real Madrid only scored in the 88th minute to see off the challenge of Espanyol and then there was 10 minutes of stoppage time there was a VAR red card and uh, a free kick goal which allowed Real Madrid to emerge with the 3-1 win but Espanyol really gave Madrid Game, but Tommy, I actually do think you're right. Some of the long and winding passages of possession, it, it is at times not as combative a league and yet the sheer physicality of Benzema to score the match-winning goal the way that he did, you know, making that run uh, the smarts you speak of Amy, I mean it, at this point every time he scores a goal, the commentators in La Liga says, here is your Ballon d'Or elect, here is the man who's the best player in the world, Karim Benzema, and to be honest it's pretty hard to ban an argument uh, because again he pops up and he scores a, a match-winning goal for Real Madrid to keep them top of the league and speaking of that this weekend on Optus Sport it's going to be uh, a pretty good fixture to set the alarm for or to stay up late for 12:15 a.m. eastern on Sunday morning so Saturday night into Sunday morning the two to remaining stay up, teams people. Yeah, stay up, I think. <laughs> the, the the two remaining teams with a perfect three-from-three three record, Real Betis against Real Madrid, are taking each other on, on Optus Sport. Manuel Pellegrini is the Betis manager. This is a club that's had no shortage of ambition. They once broke the world transfer record on Danielson, who was a contemporary of Rivaldo. Uh, Nabil Fakir is probably the, the standout player, in that Real Betis team. They finished fifth last season. They were only five points off the Champions League places. So it's good to see we've got another emerging contender in La Liga. It's not just the big two and then Atletico Madrid and Sevilla as maybe the other, the other runners. It is exciting to see that a team like Betis is trying to shake things up.
1: Definitely. I think it's still obviously very early in the season, but they've been extremely impressive in the in the first three games. But um, I think this is obviously their first big test. I think they haven't really faced any of the big sides yet. So this will be a really good game to watch, and I can't wait for it.
2: I just think they've beaten Elche, Mallorca, Osasuna. There were red cards in two of those matches also. Let's remember that they might be sitting equal equal on points with Real Madrid at the moment. Um They've also got a few players on their books. They haven't been able to register as yet, uh, I believe. But look, there, there's something about the green and white jersey at the moment, isn't there? Like, I'm going to just steal that from Celtic. And it's it's awesome to have a striker like Borja Iglesias as well. As you said, they finished fifth last season. I think they can go a little bit better than that. I do not think they will win. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, And I think this weekend will be a massive test for them. And in all honesty, if you look at the stats moving into this game, I think they have a 15% chance of winning on Sunday. So I always love an underdog and I'd love to see an upset, but in the real world of things, I can't see it happening.
1: And on the, on the Celtic topic, I, I think that Real Madrid's playing Celtic a few days later as well. So that's another yeah. another kind of parameter to that game as well.
0: And uh, speaking of teams from Seville, Sevilla played Barcelona at 5 a.m. Eastern on Sunday morning this weekend. So we'll see if uh, they can get their season back on track because they've had a pretty shocking start to the campaign. No wins from their first three games and now barcelona come to visit so it's probably the last team that they wanted to see we'll leave La Liga there you can watch it all on Optus Sport of course we're going to talk a little bit now about Tommy Orr's career because he does join us today the former Socceroo Uh, Tommy uh, your last gig was with MacArthur in the A-League men's season last campaign you've since announced your retirement what have you been doing uh, when normally you'd be undertaking pre-season training and what are your plans for the future I
1: haven't done too much, to be honest. I think the last kind of six or seven weeks, I've spent a lot of time with my family. Um, obviously, traveling around for the last 14 years hasn't given me too much time to be able to spend at home on the Gold Coast. So, I've really enjoyed kind of over the last month just spending a lot of time with my with my siblings and my parents. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to. And in terms of long-term plans, at this stage, I don't really know. I'm just uh, kind of enjoying a bit of downtime. But, I mean to stay involved in football in some capacity for me is a is a no-brainer. So we'll see where that leads.
2: You are learning to surf in your downtime, Tommy, though, aren't
1: you? Yeah, I mean, that's still very early stages, but I mean, <laughs> it's on the list.
0: <laughs> Was it a sudden decision to wrap it up, or had you been thinking about having a sort of a set date for when you might decide enough's enough?
1: No, I mean, it's something I've contemplated for a while, and I hadn't made any kind of decisive... Um, yeah, I hadn't decided before I decide to retire absolutely that that was all what i was going to do but i mean i had it in the back of my mind and kind of the thought of another a-league pre-season um wasn't too appealing to be honest and i thought that you know rather than going through the motions and just playing for the sake of it i'd rather uh call it um yeah kind of on my own terms and whilst i was still kind of at the uh, you know having some good form and these types of things so there was a lot of kind of variables in my mind but ultimately i was um comfortable with the decision and you know now I'm happy I made it
2: you're gonna miss it mate I'm telling you right now <laughs> <laughs> my yeah. advice to players out there always to- is to Play for as long as you can because you're a really long-time retired. And, Tommy, um, I hope you have uh, a wonderful, well-earned break and you learn to surf well. But at the same time, I, um, I really do hope you pull a jersey on again sometime soon because, you know, you're 30, so is Benzema. You know, we, can, we, can <laughs> we get smarter as we older. <laughs> get older. Get, get out there. Before we
0: get into some of the Geg and Pod listener questions, which were submitted by our fantastic listeners, Tommy, I have a, I have a question for you. Um, yeah. How busy is your phone going to be when we get a little bit closer to sort of uh, November, December and the NPL clubs uh, start thinking, <laughs> hang on a minute, Tommy yours available. Are you expecting uh, you know, South Melbourne or RPA Leichhardt or Preston Lions or Blacktown City to, to get on the phone and, and try to lure you out of retirement to play a little bit of NPL or maybe even a bit further down the leagues or maybe even a local team up, uh, up on the Central Coast?
1: Yeah, I mean, like Amy touched on, I think I will miss playing. So whether or what level I'll play at, who knows. But I think that I'll have a, a hard time convincing my girlfriend to give up my weekends again to play NPL, to be honest. After 14 years of having no weekends, um, we're enjoying having them together at the moment. So I don't think that's very likely, but you never know. I think, um, you know, playing, putting on the boots for a local team could be a bit of fun. So I think that's probably a more likely
0: scenario.
2: Find that Friday Night Lights team. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. But Here's my tip Maybe play, play at a very casual level Until you get the bug back And then that'll be perfect timing For the National Second Division And you can be a marquee signing For one of the teams in, in that competition <laughs> How about that? Just take on
2: Tay as your agent He's got it all I've got out it all figured out, mate Absolutely
0: <laughs> uh, Now, let's, rather than my silly questions Let's get into the listener questions um, Reflecting on your career, Tommy uh, Hiata wants to know The toughest defender that you played against Who comes to mind?
1: Sergio Ramos, I think. Um, so, obviously, in the 2014 World Cup, I was fortunate enough to play against him. And actually, I had a collision with him in the game where I actually sustained quite a bad knee injury. So, it was the toughest in in many senses. In the, in Obviously, from a footballing perspective, he was tough. But also, physically, he um, probably gave me the worst injury in my career. So he was definitely the name that comes to my mind.
0: What was the funniest encounter you've had with a stranger on the street who recognised you? Um, that's a tough one to be honest. Uh, to be uh,
1: There was one recently in Melbourne two weeks ago where I was in an Uber and the guy um, was a big football fan and um, yeah, had a lot to say about the mistakes I made in my career, so that was a pretty random, <laughs> a random encounter that I had. Um, but yeah, no. To be honest, there wasn't really too many other ones that came to mind. But um, that was a timely question because that would literally only happened two weeks ago.
0: Logan wants to know: Who do you think is the next Australian capable of bursting onto the Premier League scene? Yeah, it's a tough
1: one. I think there's a lot of um, candidates. I think one player I've been really impressed with is Kai Rolls. Uh, Obviously, we saw how good he was um, in the World Cup Qualifier recently against Peru. But now that he's... uh gone over to Scotland and he's playing for Hearts. He's really settled in well. He scored on the weekend actually but he's getting a lot of plaudits over there and obviously you know, Scotland is a league that the Premier League and England looks to a lot so I think that that could be a move on the cards for him in the future if he can maintain his current form for sure.
0: Junior wants to know, how did you stay disciplined with your training? It's hard for me.
1: Yeah well you obviously have a lot of uh, coaches pushing you along and a lot of teammates and I think that You know, obviously being a professional athlete, you're competitive by nature and you want to play every game. There's always a lot of competition for spots in the team. So if you want to play on the weekend, you have to train well. And I think that's always been one of the main motivators is, you know, if you don't train well,
0: then you won't play. Uh, We've got another question here, and I'm sure you get asked about this a lot the wearing uh, the 121-numbered jersey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's not the the main thing. You probably remember more for the goal against Japan, but the 121 jersey, that's, that's going to be something that follows you forever, I imagine.
1: It is, and I still get questions about it, um, to be honest. And I think that there was a story, actually, that circulated about, because in my career, I often wore the number 11, and 11 times 11 is 121. Coincidentally, and they they asked me if I chose it because of. They, they
0: thought you were into numerology, did they?
1: Yeah, they did. So it was. Uh, uh, yeah, I had nothing to do with it. Um, obviously, it's a it's a random fact, and it's um it's kind of funny that I wore it on my debut as well. And you know, it's it's the only Socceroos jersey I've got framed at the moment. It's 121, and every time someone sees it, they're very inquisitive. But nah, um, yeah, it's it's just one of those things, you know. And um, obviously, I didn't choose it, but it is what it is. So.
0: Speaking of uh, superstitions, Ollie wants to know, how do you prepare for games? Were Were you a strict routine guy or were you very much flexible based on the circumstances of what time of day or whether it was home or away?
1: Yeah, I'm not a superstitious person at all. I think a lot of my teammates over the years were very superstitious and very regimented in the way that I'd prepare for a game. And whilst I was professional, you know, I'd always eat the right things, get a lot of sleep and, you know, stay out of the sun, all these normal things that you you do to prepare for a game. I'd obviously do them, but I wasn't superstitious. I kind of just was quite relaxed and would just try and, um, yeah, prepare for the game and just do whatever I felt like doing um, within the kind of constraints of being professional.
0: Now, Sammy has a question, and you'll know exactly what it's referring to. Was it a cross (laughs) or a shot, mate? Be honest.
1: It was a cross, and um, I've said that every time, and everyone keeps asking if it was a cross or a shot, but I've already (laughs) admitted it was a cross, so...
0: And, of course, that's referring to the, the goal you scored against Japan in the 2013 uh, qualifying game for the World Cup. Uh, one more from our listeners here, because they've given us some some great questions here, and it's this one. Best advice for a 21-year-old who is severely one-footed, trying to train the opposite foot. What would your advice be to uh, Sirhan, who has asked that question?
1: Yeah, obviously train. I think that you know, if you can have two feet, it adds such a big dimension to your game. Um I was obviously always very left-footed and it was probably one of the big regrets of my career is that I didn't practice my right foot more growing up. And um, it always seems to be that way, to be honest. The right the right footers, na- the natural right footers seem to be both feet and then if the left footers seem to really stick to the left and that, that was definitely how it worked out for me. But I think my word of advice would just be to, you know, to bite the bullet. There's always the temptation just to, to practice with your strong foot but I think that, um, you know, kind of working hard and working on your other foot will pay dividends in the long run so you should definitely just buy the bullet and do that
0: thank you to our listeners for submitting those questions you can uh, via the instagram optus sport we're on snapchat we're on tiktok the platforms that i don't have i'm too old for those by the way but uh, twitter as well and of course the optus sport facebook amy uh, i'll leave uh, the final question for tommy as we grill him here on the Pod. for you did you have something you wanted to ask
2: oh, i just like it's such a cliche question tommy but you've your favourite memory? Does it come being on the park or off the park with your teammates? And what is it?
1: My favourite memory is making my debut—not um, not my debut on the field, but being in my first ever Socceroos squad. So it was a, a trip to Kuwait um, for a, a Asian Cup qualifier, and I remember—I think I was only eighteen at the time—and. There was, you know, some big names in the squad, you know, talking Harry, Kew, all these types of players. And it was a real pinch myself moment. And just to be there in their presence training with them, um, obviously didn't get on the field, but to be there in that squad was amazing. And that was definitely a pivotal moment in my career.
0: Well, uh... We will switch pace now from Tommy's career to talking about some of the issues in the Australia game. Uh, before we get on to the Matildas, who have a two-game series against Canada coming up, the latest rumour for Aydan Hrustic before the transfer deadline is he might be joining Hellas Verona in Serie A. Tommy, what do you make of that as a move? We've heard Hrustic linked to a number of different destinations, previously Salernitana and even Real Batis, who are having that fantastic start to the season. What do you think Hellas Verona would be like as a potential destination for Aydin Hrustic?
1: Fantastic club and obviously fantastic league. But, um, I think obviously from a selfish perspective, with the World Cup around the corner, I think the most important thing for him is to try and get reg- regular match minutes. Um, we saw Matt Ryan make a sensible move that obviously to a smaller league, but it's kind of given him the platform to play week in, week out, and that'll be fantastic for the soccerers going into the World Cup. So obviously for for Ajdin, obviously it's a fantastic move on a personal note, but um, yeah, from a selfish perspective, I really just want him to be playing regular football.
2: I just hope for him it'll be the boost that he needs, and as long as he gets the minutes, which you know we're hearing that he will. If he if he goes to um, Verona, then that'll be great. And will he line up? You know, soon we will wait with bated breath to find out. Um, you know, leaving Germany with three goals in thirty nine games, you, you need more than a Europa League crown to to play in a World Cup. You need more time on the pitch than that. And I think the goal for All Aussies in contention for the World Cup is to be playing games. I think Graham Arnold made it very, very clear recently and probably reiterated this earlier this week that it's up to the players to get physically ready for this World Cup. Um, He has no control over their minutes at clubs. Um, You know, which is a concern if you're from the A-League because there's only, what, four or five rounds before that World Cup window. Um, That September window that's coming up where they play New Zealand, that's super important to some players to get more minutes under the belt. But ultimately, match minutes are crucial because at the World Cup... um, they're going to have games potentially every four days. Uh, and I think the other point here is those ma- why those match minutes are also important for players trying to break into this squad is that this World Cup we can have 26 players. That's three more than normal. Normally we only take 23 to a World Cup. So, you know, I think especially for Australia, if you're a defender or, or a striker or a creative midfielder, you might see a surprise or two um, sneak into this squad depending on their form. But... Yeah, I think, I hope it'll be a good move for him as long as he continues to get minutes.
0: Well, let's uh, talk about the Matildas kind of to bring us home on the Gigan pod today. Saturday in Brisbane, 245 Eastern kickoff. It's the Matildas against Canada. Then they come to the new Allianz Stadium in Sydney and get to play the first football game on that new pitch. Amy, you've been inside that stadium. Uh, We all know Suncorp has a great atmosphere and it's been four years now since Brisbane last hosted the Matildas. So it's pretty exciting to see them back on home soil, uh, back in Brisbane for the first time in a while, and then uh, christening a new stadium in a footballing sense.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's just awesome when our Matildas are on our home shore because obviously so many of them live overseas now and for them to come home and be able to play. And I feel um, this Brisbane game has been, or the or Queensland game has been a long time coming for the Matildas, especially for those that live in and around there because their family can come, their friends can come, people that grew up playing with them can come. Um, all the fans don't have to travel so far. So I feel like it's going to be a wonderful, it's mid-afternoon in Brisbane, which I think is, you know, family-friendly time. I think that that's going to be awesome. And yes, the the atmosphere inside Suncorp is is good, especially if you get a great crowd. But when you come to Sydney and you see this new stadium and you see the light show, the pitch is immaculate um, and hopefully still will be after the Wallabies game on the weekend. Uh, They've got a few days to turn that around. And I have the utmost faith. It'll, It'll be beautiful. It looks really fast. Um, the stadium is, uh, you know, it's very deeply built So you can, everyone has a great view um, The sounds will be absolutely amazing And I really just, I really just um, hope we can pack the grandstands And put on a really good show
0: Canada need to win these The top, the, because Australia and New Zealand are seeded for the World Cup Only the top six on the FIFA rankings get seeded in pot A Canada is currently seventh in the world pretty good circumstances to have I mean you say friendlies these these aren't really friendlies these are vitally important games especially for the Canadians to try and avoid ending up in pot B because then you might end up with a really tough team you might end up with an England in your group and even at a 32 team world cup you end up with a you end up in pot B whether that's Spain who are struggling at the moment in the world rankings or Canada or Brazil you don't want to be there do you
2: Uh, Honestly, the the top 10 in football at the moment is just so outstanding. And, you know, you're right, it's a big game for Canada. They're missing a couple of their big names. They're bringing in a couple of new faces. Um, Their coach, Bev Priestman, she's got 18 of the CONCACAF squad backing up. They um, are coming off qualifying tournament over in Mexico. They lost to the US in the final. But can I say it's only from a late penalty, which Alex Morgan put away. And so, you know, they're competing with the world number one there. Um, people might have a different view on that because you've just seen England, you know, wipe the Euros. And I think there's an expectation that England may end up in, in that number one position, but we'll have to wait and see. But any of those top 10 nations, um, it is amazing. And, and I don't think there's going to be an easier an easier route to get there. Um, as I said, 18 of the players backing up from that. There'll be 12 players from the the medal-winning team in Tokyo, it is such a long time since Canada has graced Australian shores. And, and while it's so important, if you don't know who Christine Sinclair is, you should. Um, this is a player that has been around that Canadian team for years now. She has 315 caps. Can you even get your head around playing for your country? 315 times, 190 goals. Absolutely remarkable. And to see her, you know, Kanisha Buchanan, uh, Jesse Fleming out on the pitch, it's not just the Aussies I'm going to see, it's also also the Canadians.
0: Tommy, uh, who has the most to prove from Australia and what do you need to see from the Matildas in these two games?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I'm just really excited to see um, them back in Australia like Amy touched on and obviously... Um, I think the World Cup will come around very quickly and, um, you know, these are really good opportunities for everyone, not only just take a claim to be in the World Cup squad but also for the team to kind of evolve and take it to a new level. Um, I think that obviously Amy Fowler, or Mary Fowler, sorry, I think that she's um, the one player that I always really am really excited to watch and I think that she's the one that, you know, she's the future of the Matildas for me. And I think that to kind of to, to see her take her game to a new level, a new mid- levels of maturity before the World Cup will go a long way to determining whether or not the Matildas can be successful.
2: And she's, she's made the move this year from the French League of course off to Manchester City to ensure that she's in the best possible training environment. Um, and playing environment ahead of the World Cup. And I think that's been a great move for her. Tommy, look, we do have a point to prove, um, but it it will just be so great to have our big names all back together. Uh, The players have had a good break. They've now had a pre-season. They should be feeling fresh. Um, They might find the pace of the game a little lung-busting to start with because it's been a while since um, some of these players have played at that top level. But... What we need to see is all of our players in their best form playing fast-flowing, attacking football and, um, you know, clearly an improved defensive effort, but um, we know that that can't be solved overnight. We're missing Ellie out with an ACL injury, but to have, you know, the striker line that we have, you know, with, with Kerr, with... Um, Caitlin Ford, you know, Emily Gilnick's coming along. Uh, unfortunately, Hayley Rasso's out. But as you said, Mary Fowley in there. We can be in for some some magical moments over these games.
0: And don't forget, if you do watch the Matildas this weekend or next week and you want to see them playing for their club teams, 10 of them now play in the Women's Super League, which is, of course, live and exclusive on Optus Sport. So make sure you jump onto the Optus Sport app and give it a look because it is the home of the WSL as well. And if you are uh, unable to make it to the game in Brisbane on Saturday, watch uh, because I'm hearing the commentary for that game is going to be pretty good. Oh. All right, let's uh, let's <laughs> let's wrap up the Gagan pod right there. Next week, Mark Schwartz's interview with Sam Kerr, which was conducted at the Chelsea Training Ground, will be out. Uh, apparently, it is going live on Friday on Optus Sport, so maybe just uh, keep an eye on that on the Optus Sport app and web. Website Mark Schwartz is sitting down for an exclusive one-on-one with Sam Kerr. The Gagan Pod is out each Wednesday during the course of the season. We've got Premier League and La Liga this weekend. Celta versus Awamabils Kadith starts it all at 5am on Saturday morning. There's a J-League doubleheader between FC Tokyo and Kevin Musket's Yokohama F Marinos and then Shonan Belmar against the defending champions Kawasaki Frontale. That is at 8pm on Saturday night Eastern time. And uh, we've got the Merseyside Derby Saturday night, 9.30pm Australian Eastern and coverage from 8.30pm. All of this live and on demand on Optus Sport. The midweek round of Premier League rolls on as well depending on what day you're listening to the pod. Amy Duggan, thanks for joining us this morning.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, Tommy, all congrats on another debut. We didn't make you wear the podcast 121 but uh, <laughs> it, it couldn't have gone much better. So thank you for your insights and we look forward to tapping into a bit more of those over the course of the seasons. So thanks for joining us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you listeners as well. Make sure you subscribe in whatever podcast app you use to download as Rate us five stars as well. We'll be back next Wednesday on behalf of the crew. My name is Teo Pelizzari. Thanks for listening to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was The Gegen Pod.